as you're engaging over the course of these few months as we look at Nehemiah. So today we're going to do a recap. Uh, It's easy to lose sight of the bigger picture. We've done Nehemiah 1 through 6 in I think five or six weeks, and we can lose sight of what happened in chapter 1 after a couple of weeks and uh, just lose, lose the thread. And so we want to step back, kind of big picture context, what actually is going on in Nehemiah 1 through 6. And so just two verses today to, to set the stage. When the wall, the, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, that's October 2nd, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So timeline, 445 BC, November, December, somewhere in there, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, his name is Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is living in Susa, which is uh, the winter capital of the king of of the Persian empire. Again, he's a cupbearer, so his job's exactly what you think. He brings wine to the king. Uh, His brother Hanani comes to him. November, December, 445, Nehemiah says, what's going on in Jerusalem? And his brother gives him a report. And in that report, Nehemiah is called by God back to Jerusalem. And that the report is this. Nehemiah says, what's going on in Jerusalem? And his brother says, it's not great. The wall's been torn down. Our people are in trouble and in great disgrace. And again, in that moment, Nehemiah is burdened by God to, to do something about it. So he begins to pray. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts. Four months he spends praying. He says he's praying day and night for four months. And then in the spring of 444, March, April, somewhere in there, the king's having a banquet. Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, has an opportunity to get close to the king. And the king asks him, why do you look so upset? And in that moment, Nehemiah asks the question. He says, well, why shouldn't I look so upset? The city where my ancestors were buried is in ruins. And and from there, he asked King Artaxerxes, can I have permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall? He's granted permission. And so then he sets out. It seems pretty quickly he sets out. 900 miles from Susa to Jerusalem. It takes about four months to make the trip. So now we're looking at late July, early August, 444 B.C., Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, takes three days to rest, makes a circuit around the walls. Let me get the scope of the project, get the condition of the walls. Let me see what's going to be required to rebuild them. Then he gathers the people and he casts a vision. He says, listen, this isn't good. We're in trouble. We don't have any defenses and we're disgraced because our city is still in ruins, even though God has called us back here. We need to do something about this. We need to rebuild this wall. And almost immediately, the people begin to work. And on October 2nd, they finish the job 52 days. That's it. In 52 days, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's a pretty incredible feat. And just to give you a picture, this is not your backyard fence. This wall is 8 feet thick and 40 feet tall. And they, the, the circuit that they build is about 1.6 miles. So that's from here to the visitor center, just about. Down Kennesaw, make a left down Old 41, just about from here to the visitor center, 1.6 miles. Not nothing that they do in 52 days. Eight feet thick, 40 feet tall, 1.6 mile circuit. And remember, he doesn't have a team of contractors. It's just regular people. It's not a bunch of stonemasons. It's just men and women 
who are living in Jerusalem at the time and in the surrounding areas. And he rallies them all together, all together to this work. And their circumstances aren't ideal. They've got the surrounding nations that are trying to discourage them and intimidate them. There's internal strife between the, 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 the wealthier Jews who've loaned money to the poorer Jews and what's going to happen with, with those loans. Nehemiah has to deal with both external and internal obstacles. And in 52 days, they get this wall built. Again, that's a pretty phenomenal accomplishment. And what we want to do is step back and say, was there anything in Nehemiah that we can learn? We could look at him and just say, well, he's just kind of a one-off great leader. Good for Nehemiah. Is there anything from him that we can take? Or we may say, well, he's building a wall. I'm not, I'm not doing that. No walls. No, that's not what God's asking of me. So maybe even if there is something in Nehemiah, it doesn't necessarily translate to what God has asked me to do. So let's take that idea of building a wall metaphorically. Ephesians 2.10, one of our core values, God's created good works in advance for us to do. The good work for Nehemiah during this season of his life is to literally build a wall around Jerusalem. It's very tangible. It's very physical. In our language, that was his deal for that season of his life. That was his calling. So what about for you? What about for me? What's the metaphorical wall God's asking you to rebuild? What is the, what, what is, what's the good work that God has for you right now in your life? There's something. And as you think about that, what is that? What are some things from Nehemiah? Two traits we're going to talk about. He was a man of faith. He was a man of action. As we cultivate those two heart postures in our own life, becoming people of prayer and people of action, it doesn't guarantee fruitfulness. God is the only one that can do that. But it does position us to rebuild our wall as effectively as we can. Again, the results are up to the Lord. So Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Seven times in Nehemiah 1 through 6, we see him praying uh, the first time, it's for an extended period of time. It's for four months. He says he's praying day and night. That's obviously not literal. It just means he's praying all the time. That's what we would say about this wall and about his role and God give me favor with the king. And then in chapter 2, we see another one of Nehemiah's. It's, a, it's typical of him. The king says, what, what, why are you upset? And in the moment, Nehemiah breathes this prayer. Split second, probably not even out loud. This is the green light he thinks from God to ask the king if he can go back to Jerusalem. And so really briefly, just a spontaneous internal prayer for favor. Nehemiah prays for strength. Nehemiah prays for God to take care of the enemies of Jerusalem. Prayer is a thread that runs throughout Nehemiah 1 through 6. He was a man of prayer. He was also a man of action. Nehemiah didn't say, well, God wants me to go to Jerusalem and he can get me there. He asked the king for permission to go back, even though that's a pretty risky thing to do. He didn't say, well, if God wants us to rebuild the wall, then there's some, some lumber will show up. He asked the king, can I have permission to get lumber from your royal forest? The king says, okay. When obstacles arise, Nehemiah doesn't go, well, I guess God's not in this. He deals with them. He makes decisive decisions. Here's what we're going to do when our enemies are trying to intimidate us. You guys are going to keep working, but you're going to work with a weapon in your hand or strapped to your side. I'm going to take some of my guys, and they're going to be permanent sentries looking out to make sure nobody is, is coming to attack us. And if somebody comes, I'm going to have a trumpet. And the a guy with me with a trumpet, and he's going to blow the trumpet, and y'all rally to the trumpet because that's where we're being attacked. I want all of y'all to spend the night in here. And that gives us protection at night as well as it maximizes daylight for us to get this job done as quickly as we can. 
He's a man of action. When there's controversy between the rich and the poor, he says to the rich, no more interest. You give back anything that you've taken in pledge, land, homes, children, whatever it is, give it back. Cancel the debts. He's a decisive man, man of prayer, man of action. Those are not opposite. The opposite of prayer is not action. The opposite of prayer is prayerlessness. And the opposite of action is inactivity. But for many of us, we do tend to kind of lean one way or the other. We're people who maybe are more bent towards prayer. Maybe we're more bent towards action. We want to hold both of those things in common. We want to hold both of those things. It's not even intention in our life. It's cultivating both of them. Fruitfulness is... It's, it's more likely as we become people of prayer and people of action. So first, three categories for prayer. People who don't pray. I'm only talking to the church here. People who don't pray. People who pray. And people of prayer. So people who don't pray. If this is you, don't feel guilty. But change. Like honestly, it's, it's silly. It's dumb. If I to not, I don't get it. So here's the thing. When you become a Christian, you have access to the Father. Everything that is Jesus's is now available to you. And when you, if we don't pray, then we're leaving all of that on the table. Everything that our heavenly Father would desire to do in us or through us, we're basically saying to him, I'm good. I don't need it. Not interested doesn't make any sense to me. And so I would encourage you, if you're someone who for whatever reason, maybe because you've prayed before and God didn't answer your prayers, and so you're like, ah, it doesn't work for me. God didn't listen. Maybe you're one of those guys and you're thinking, man, I kind of got my stuff together, but there are other people out there and they're in way worse shape than me and God can focus on them. So he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't pick and choose. He can listen to everybody all at once. He's got more than enough resources for everyone. He doesn't say, well, if I'm going to work in Les's life, then too bad for Terry. He doesn't do that. We got options. And so what I want us to do is move towards being people, who, first step, who pray. Move from not praying, whether that's because of unbelief or pride. That's an ugly word, but that's something that holds some of us back. Again, we've got our life together. We don't really need anything. That's just because we're not really paying attention. To people who pray. The average Christian prays one to four minutes a day. Maybe you're in that category. It's better than nothing 100%. When we're people who pray, that generally focuses around our circumstances. I'm in over my head. There's something in my life that I recognize I can't handle. And so I need God to get involved and I ask him. Slash, we pray when we're supposed to. Meal times, maybe bedtime if you're putting your kid to bed. Small group. The times when we're expected to pray, that's it for us. Again, like one to four minutes a day, which is way better than nothing. And those prayers tend to be circumstance-driven. I have a need, and, I need, and I'm asking God to meet that need. That is good and right as it should be. The Lord's Prayer, the model prayer Jesus gives us, if you read through it, it's mostly petitions. That's what most of it is, asking God to, to do something. And again, that's good and right as, as, and, and as it should be. That's, that's uh, one of the dynamics of being a son or a daughter of God. Is he, he desires that from us. He desires us to come to him with our needs and our wants. 
good and right and as it should be. But what we want to do is we want to take that, being people who pray, and we want to add to that, grow in that, not leave it behind, but expand to become people of prayer. And that, that is different. That's less based on circumstances and more based on relationship. That's less asking for God to do something and more just wanting to be with him. So you can think about it this way. There's people who don't run. There's people who run, some of you. And then there are runners, fewer of you. I don't run. I used to be a person who ran because I had to. In order to do whatever my sport was, they made me run. That was the only reason I did it. Never enjoyed it. The beginning of the pandemic, the gym where I uh, go to, it closed. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try to run because I can't do anything else. And I like sweet tea and I like candy. <laughs> so I started trying to run. Awful. <laughs> People are like runners high. Uh-uh. You'll grow into it. Nope. It was terrible. I'm sure there were some ancillary benefits other than just being in pain and probably embarrassing myself a little bit. I ran early, early in the morning before the sun came up, just in case. So for some of you, you're a person who runs. You run because, like me, you like sugar and you don't want to be too overweight or you want a strong heart or because you're, you're training for a particular race and you want, you want to do well. You're running because of what running does for you. It's not necessarily that you love it in and of itself. You enjoy the benefits. If you could take a pill and get the same benefits, you're probably hanging up the shoes. You're a person who runs. And that's where many of us are. We're, we're people who pray. We enjoy the benefits. We recognize it's important. And so we're going to do it. But we don't necessarily enjoy it for its own sake. Runners do. They just love to run. And there are, again, a few of you who are like that. You do it because you want to, not because you have to. You do it whether it's raining. You do it if it's cold. You do it on vacation because you just enjoy the activity. We can get there with prayer, and if you're thinking, eh, eh, no. Right now, I'm just trying to get up in the morning, and you're talking about delighting in, just, in prayer. Like, don't let that intimidate you. It's growth for us. That's where we're headed, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing the Father and the Son. So that is what eternity is for us. It's this unfiltered relationship with the Lord, and we can begin to grow into that now. Prayer is a primary means of staying connected to God. We want to always be children who ask for what we need and what we want. That's not immaturity. That's being a son or a daughter. And we want to grow into the kind of people who say, even if I don't get what I want, I just like being with you. I just want to abide. I want to stay connected. And prayer is the way I do that. And sometimes I don't even have to say anything. Some of you, uh, you're, I'm looking around the room, you're married, you've been married 30, 40 years, and you don't have to, it's not even necessarily about what you're doing with your spouse anymore. It's just being with him or her. Sometimes you don't even have to talk. 
You just enjoy being in one another's company and presence. And we want to grow in prayer that way. That's nothing, you're not, I'm not asking you to become a monk or a nun. This is for everybody. You don't have to be a mystic. It's asking the Lord, stir within me. You can see there, I don't know if it's still up on the screen, that slide, the, the motivation. Originally, we pray out of desperation, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's biblical prayer. God, help. And then we move to duty. I'm praying because I know it's the right thing to do. I'm going to run because it's good for me. And then we can move to this place of delight where we just enjoy doing that. And again, if that seems so far off or so remote or so out of reach for you, don't be intimidated. Ask the Lord for help. If right now you're not praying, let's start there. What do you pray? You pray for whatever keeps you up at night. Whatever it is that makes it difficult for you to fall asleep or the first thing you think of when you wake up. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 120 seconds, whatever you've got. Just begin to invite God in. God, I'm stressed about fill in the blank. God, I'm worried about this, that, or the other. Just invite him to get involved. And if you're someone who doesn't think he hears you, then tell him, God, I'm saying this, and I don't think you're listening. And if you're listening, I'm not positive you're even going to do anything about it, but here goes anyway. He responds to that level of authenticity. You tell him, God, this is what I believe. I believe that you're real. I believe that you're alive. I believe that you love me. And this is what I don't believe. I don't believe you listen to me. Or I don't believe that you heal people. Or I don't believe that you care about my job. Help me in my unbelief. That's a biblical prayer. God, this is what I believe. Help me in these areas where I don't believe. And he will. Second, if, you're, if you are a person who prays, keep doing that. Keep asking God to get involved. And what I would encourage you to do is to pray long enough. I don't know how to do this where it's not a sacrifice. The only way to become, to move from being a person of, who prays to a person of prayer is to spend time with the Lord and time with him is time you're not spending on anything else. It is a sacrifice. There's no way around it. You got to give up something. You got to give up sleep or you're going to give up TV. You're going to give up something Maybe not completely, but some amount of something in order to devote that time to God. Pray long enough to get off your list. If you got a 10-minute list, then you pray for 15 minutes. If you got a 20-minute list, then pray for 25 minutes. If you got a 30-minute list, then you pray for 35 minutes. Pray off your list. Once you get through all of the things that you need God to do, then you'll actually get to what's the depths of your heart. You'll move off of your list which is really important. Pray your list. But you want to pray long enough to move off of it. So there's freedom to just be. Think about every other relationship you have. If all you're doing is getting things done, are you really getting to know the other person? Some of your best time with people, it's the unscripted, it's the unstructured, it's the unplanned. If we don't give God any of that space, then we never get to, to meet him in that way. We're cutting ourselves off and selling ourselves short. Don't be intimidated. Just ask him. Ask him for help, and he'll help you, and then engage. Man of action, person of action, Nehemiah. So when you think about action, two things. It's a little bit corny, but it'll help you remember it. Faithful and faith-filled. Not the same thing at all. 
We want to be faithful. That's Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction, one foot in front of the other. Some of us are really good at that. We're as steady and dependable as the day is long. Here's the assignment. We're just going to keep pecking away at it. Nehemiah 5.16, I devoted myself to that wall. That's what I did. I got up and I did the wall. I did the wall all day. I went to bed thinking about the wall. All about that. And for some of us, we're wired that way. We're like, just put the pack on and tell me which direction to go. Step after step. That's faithfulness. Incredibly important. And then there's faith-filledness, which is not the same thing. That's believing God to break in. Believing God to do something that you can't do on your own. It's not just peck, 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 peck. It's breakthrough. It's Nehemiah saying, I'm going to quit my job, leave my house, and move 900 miles away because I believe God is in this. A couple of things off of both of those ideas. And again, many of us, we kind of lean one way or the other. One of those two is a bit more comfortable for us. Faithful perseverance is really important. There are obstacles to faithfulness. For Nehemiah, he had these external obstacles, Sanballat and these other local leaders that were trying to discourage and intimidate. They didn't want the wall rebuilt. Five times they tried to lure Nehemiah into a deserted area to harm him. There are external obstacles. There's internal obstacles for Nehemiah. There's the tension between the rich and the poor in his own community. There's a prophet, and actually a group of prophets, who for whatever reason is not supportive of him. One of them, Shemamiah, tries to get Nehemiah to sin. Come hide in the temple, even though it would be a sin for him to do that. Obstacles. He has to persevere, the capacity to bear up well under difficult circumstances. And for some of us, when it comes to faithfulness, we're just... Honestly, we're sprinters. We're not marathoners. Lots of running metaphors today. That's not who we are. We give up. We get discouraged. We get distracted. We quit. We get bored. We don't persevere. It doesn't take a ton to redirect us or to shut us down. Busyness, you know that, where we live. It's one of the external obstacles. You've heard of the tyranny of the urgent. This idea that we, do ju- we just do what's next, not what's important, rarely is the thing that the Lord is asking of us, the thing that's screaming the loudest. God just doesn't do that. He's not going to fire you. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to demote you. And so it's super easy to put off anything that he's asking of us to do because somebody else is screaming louder. There's some other fire blazing in front of us. The researchers, they call it the merely urgent. All it takes for us to turn our gaze to something is the short-term deadline. That's it. Just because something is merely urgent, we will we'll do it versus something that's important, regardless of how important that thing is. I think we get a dopamine hit when we check the box. I think that's true. And so checking the boxes makes us feel really good. We don't necessarily get around to the things that are important. We're not persevering. And then apathy, that also gets us. Honestly, we don't care. We live insulated, isolated lives. And so it's easy for us to lose heart connection with what God wants to do. Are you faithful? And then faith-filled. I think about Nehemiah 2, 3, and 4. I was very much afraid, but 
I said to the king. That's a scary moment for Nehemiah. He could have gotten thrown in jail. He could have been fired. He could have had his head cut off. The king had already shut down the building project once because he said the Jews were rebellious. And now Nehemiah is asking him to restart it, to go back to reverse an earlier decree that he made. It's a big deal. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He thinks this is the green light. This is the open door the Lord's given me. No guarantees how Artaxerxes is going to reply. But Nehemiah is filled with faith. He's trusting the Lord in that moment. He takes a risk. At some point for all of us, there's this gap between what God wants us to do and what we feel like we're able to do. And that gap is faith. And that's what God's looking for. Will you trust me when the numbers don't add up? Will you trust me when this thing seems beyond your capacity to handle and do? Will you risk humiliation? Will you risk disappointment? Will you risk failure? In the name of trust, that's what it means to be faith-filled. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's choosing obedience in the face of it. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. Sometimes we have this idea that if God is calling us to to do something, we have this supernatural sense of can-do-it-ness within us. I've been doing this for 34 years. I haven't felt that yet. Almost always, there's a sense of fear and trepidation. I don't know. Is it going to work out? How is it going to work out? To be faith-filled is in that moment to take a step anyway. That's what courage looks like. That's nothing that you have. That's not an everyday necessarily. Every day is faithfulness. But there are these critical junctures, these inflection points in our life when being filled with faith is what leaps, it moves things forward in a significant way. You can think about um, like a, a, a glass ceiling and we tap, 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 tap. That's faithfulness. And then at some point we break through and move into a new area. That's being faith-filled. And there's those moments. And again, it's not every day but they come along every so often where we do have to kind of put our chips on the table and say, okay, I'm willing to take a risk in what I believe is obedience to the Lord. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move 900 miles away and I'm going to somehow, with my only experience being picking out wine, somehow I'm going to lead a project rebuilding a wall. I don't really know how to do that. I've never led anything, but now I'm the governor of this province. I'm going to, I just think God's in it, so I'm in. Those moments, again, they don't come along all the time, but they do come along. And when they do, we want to be people of courage, not people who aren't afraid, but people who overcome fear, people who don't allow fear to dictate our decisions. We do that. We become people of prayer. We become people of action. Again, no guarantee of results. I don't know what, that's not our thing. And the kingdom obedience is success. So we just, we do the things that God is asking us to do. And then the results are up to him. But we're more likely to see fruit if we will become people who pray, people who are faithful, and people who are faith-filled. Let's pray. So I want you to think about that. If I can put you on the spot, which I can because I have a microphone, I want you to do this.
I want you to give yourself a grade. One through ten. No fives. That's cheating. Where are you on that continuum of prayer? Would you say, yeah, I'm actually, actually, yeah. I'm becoming a person of prayer. I really am. I find myself delighting in the Lord and His presence. I find myself abiding in Him. Or would you say, not, not so much. I go, I go days. I go weeks without asking God for anything other than bless this food. I just, it's not a part of who I am. What about being faithful? Long obedience in the same direction. Someone who perseveres even through difficulty. And be asking this before the Lord. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Just before the Lord, God, what, 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 what are you seeing in me here? And then faith-filledness. Are you someone who trusts God? Do you believe Him to do more than you can ask or imagine? That can be a scary thing. We like a domesticated Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us? I'm thankful that your voice is never condemning. It is convicting. And so we want to hear, is there a place where you're calling us higher and deeper this morning? It's not going to be in every area. That's too much. But in one of these areas, being a person of prayer, being faithful, being faith-filled, would you put your finger, Holy Spirit, on the thing that you're most wanting to cultivate in us? And show us, what's our responsibility in this? What are you asking of us? How do we obey? So I want you to take the pressure off in terms of performing. It's not, it's not the deal. We're just responding. So you can just pray this really openly. We want to invite you to go ahead and begin to come forward. If one of those three things is stirring, becoming a person of prayer, faithful, faith-filled, if you know the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on that and saying, hey, I want, I want you growing there. Let's deal with that now. Just go ahead and begin to come forward. You can stand or kneel here at the front. We'll have somebody come by and put a hand on their shoulder and pray with you. All of us, we can pray this just to open your hearts. Holy Spirit, lead me. I want to be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. Your son who was a man of prayer and a man of action. So let that be true of me as well. Amen. You guys can stand. We're going to close with worship. Y'all can please come forward as you feel led to do so.